name is Jaina. I'm the intern at Penn State. And I have the honor and privilege of being able to introduce um, this week's large group speaker. Um, and let me just tell y'all, we are in for a treat. Um, you may or may not have like peeped his bio in the app, but in case you have not, uh, Russ Whitfield is a pastor of a multicultural church um, in DC called Grace Mosaic. And he's been in the RUF circuit for a little bit. He's taught some um, seminars at Summer Conference in the past, so maybe you've heard him, but if you haven't, again, let me just say we are in for a treat. Um, he's thrilled to be here, and I've known Russ for the past two years, um, and he, I've been blessed by his wisdom, his encouragement, his hospitality, his cooking, um, his vocals. Y'all, this man can sing. Um, so without further ado, we're about to be blessed by his teaching. Give it up for Russ Whitfield. What's up, y'all? Look, y'all don't even know how excited I am to be here. In fact, when I got the call earlier in the year uh, from one of the campus ministers, he called me up. He's like, hey, man, we want to know if you'll come and do summer conference. I was like, like usual? He's like, no, the main stage. I said, for real? And he's like, yeah, man, we want you to come. And I was like, all right, done deal. I'm in. And my wife was sitting there, and, uh, and I got off the phone, and I was like, you never gonna guess what's happening. She's like, what? I was like, I am bound, I am bound, I am bound for the prom. She's like, shut up, what are you talking about? I was like, we're going to Suco. So we are so thrilled to be here with you uh, for this week. I am, um, I'm excited about what we're gonna be talking about. And I want all of you right now, even as you're sitting here, maybe you're a little bit tired from the day and, and, and you know, the beach ministry that was going on strong down there that I saw y'all getting it in, you know, doing the beach reach, you know, on, on, the, on the beach. You, you may be tired right now, but I want all of you to begin to lift your expectations for what this week could mean for you. I want you to begin to elevate your expectations for what God may be able to do in your life this week. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what kind of things you have on your heart. I don't know what kind of big decisions you have before you, but I promise you this. If you begin to take a new look on God's word, if you begin to listen to God in ways that you maybe haven't, if you begin to lean into God's word in a different way this week, things can change in your life. And that's what we're going to be doing this week. We're going to be covering the theme of the Word of God. And so this evening, we're going to open up uh, in the book of Hebrews. And we're going to read two passages out of the book of Hebrews. We're going to read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And we're going to read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So if you would open your Bible or tap that app, as my boy Matt uh, was saying earlier. He's such a heathen. I don't know what's wrong with him. Where you at? My man. <laughs> He's crazy. His, his mode of humor hits me in all the right places. It's got me laughing my head off over there. Crazy. Get on your app and get in the, in the book, or you can just check it out up here on the screen. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. This is God's word. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, 
through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now skip to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Lift your hands with me as we come to God in prayer. We come to God with empty, open hands. So if you would lift those hands with me as we pray. God, we are thankful that you are so generous as to give everything we need through your word. We are grateful to be here in this beautiful setting so that our hearts may be shaped by our time together under your word and by our time together in community. And we pray that as we hold these empty hands open, Lord, that you would fill them. We pray that you would nourish us, that you would maybe for the first time help us to see who Jesus is in all of his fullness, in all of his goodness, in all of his saving power. So God, I pray that you would bless these friends. I pray that you would speak powerfully to them through this word of yours. And I pray that some of us would leave here with new life, the life that goes on forever, the life that has the kind of quality that cannot be matched by anything in this world. And I pray for friends in here who may be struggling or suffering or or tempted and tried, I pray that you would strengthen them and encourage them. I pray that you would give us all the grace to humble ourselves, to repent, and to believe more deeply in what you have done for us in the gospel. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen, amen. No matter who you are, no matter what your personality type, no matter if you're from the north or from the south, there is something that you do all day every day. You talk. You talk all day, every day. You talk to your roommates. You talk to your neighbors. You talk to your classmates. If you want to order food, you talk. If you want to get the oil changed in your car, you talk. If you want to open up a bank account, you talk. If you want to get help with a deep problem, you talk. We have very wordy lives. They say that the average adult speaks 16,000 words per day. I think my children double that easily. We live wordy lives. And if you think back over your life, if you, if you begin to think about your own story, about how you have become who you are, about some of the big decisions that you've made in your life, the chances are that if you look back over your life, you will, you will see that you have been deeply shaped. Your life story has been deeply shaped by words. Maybe it was the words of a coach, Coach Hatfield. Someone 
who spoke into your life and they encouraged you. They told you, hey, you're good at that. Keep going at it. Maybe it was the words of a, of a parent or a mentor who encouraged you to go into the, the field that you're studying in school right now. Or maybe your life was shaped by abusive words. Maybe it was the words of someone who just said hurtful things to you. Maybe it was the words of betrayal by someone that you really trusted. Maybe the words of rejection have really shaped your life, words that came from someone you really wanted to be with. Maybe the most influential words in your life are your own words that are running through your head all the time. All the things you're saying about yourself. I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not accomplished enough. And you have this spin cycle of destructive self-speak that you hear in your head constantly. I know that all of us have been shaped by the words of media and marketing that come at us every day, all day. The barrage of words that is constantly coming at us. Our lives are wordy and our lives are deeply shaped by the words that we hear. And you know what has the deepest influence in your life? The words that have the most weight to you. Whatever words are most weighty to you, those have the deepest influence on your life. It, it could come from someone you really respect. It could come from someone who has a lot of power over your life, it feels like. And their words leave a deep mark on you. I don't know how you have arrived here this evening. I don't know how words have shaped your past, but there's something that I do know. I do know this, that there are words that could absolutely transform your present and your future, and it's the words that you find in this book. Your past may be shot through with words that have been so destructive but if you were to come under the influence of God's words, it could bring the kind of healing that you've been longing for. Your, your life may be in, a, in chaos right now because you have bought into the lies of the words spoken to you from our culture. But if you come under the influence of these words, it will make all the difference in your life. I want you to ask yourself a question this week. I want you to wrestle with this. Could it be that God has spoken such a decisive word that everything about your life could be more beautiful, more hopeful, more powerful? Could it be that God has spoken such words that no matter where you're situated right now, you could be on a trajectory to glory? no matter how ugly your past has been, no matter how ugly your present may be right now, you may be entangled by some deep stuff right now. But God's words are the words of freedom. God speaks. And the question for each and every one of us is this. Am I listening? Am I listening? That's the deepest question. God, God speaks. God has spoken. But the question is, are we listening? And so over the course of this week, we are going to consider what it is that God does in the lives of people through his word. What does God do in people's lives through his word? What kind of work does God accomplish through his words? What does God do? 
How does he speak to people in various situations? How does he speak to the restless? How does he speak to the failure? How does, how does he speak to the outsider? How does he speak to the fearful? Those are the themes that we're going to consider this week. But tonight, we're going to begin with a big picture outlook on God's word as it comes to us from the book of Hebrews. And what we're going to check out is the fact that God's word bears witness and, and it issues a warning to us. But before we get going, listen, I know that y'all are, are, are in, in college right now and you're sitting under professors and, and you know, Christians have done enough dumb things to get themselves in a situation where we don't tend to get a lot of respect in academic circles at times. But I want you to know something. People all through history, all over the globe, have come to this word in various situations in life. They have brought all kinds of questions to this book. They've come to this book in all kinds of difficulties, wrestling with all kinds of drama, rich and poor. Young and old have come to this book. Those who have graduated college, magna cum laude, and those who graduated high school, thank you, Lordy. All kind of people <laughs> have come to this book in faith, believing that what God is able to do in my life through this book can mean the difference between life and death, can mean the difference between hopelessness and, and eternal joy. So we're joining a great company this evening as we get into Hebrews. There's a great cloud of people through time and around the globe who have come to this book for hope because it's in this book that we find the God of hope. So let's, let's get into our text for tonight as we consider the witness of this book, this, this passage, and the warning of God's word. The witness of God's word. What is God's word saying to us in its essence? And what is God's word warning us about? So let's look at our first point where we see the witness. Somebody say witness. witness. Yeah, we're going to be presbycostal or something over here. <laughs> All, right. All right, check it out. This book goes out to this congregation of people, this, this small little church that's situated in a city. It's a small little house church in an urban context. And it's, it's in, a, in a time where Christians... We're not in the cultural power centers of their place. Christians were on the margins, and they lived a very vulnerable situation in their place. It was at a time where Christians were being persecuted, where they lived a very scary and anxiety-driven existence. You know why? Because they were being attacked by state-sponsored prosecution. They, they were being dragged out of their homes and taken to the Colosseum so that they could be thrown to wild animals for the entertainment of the city folk. They didn't know that if it, one day they were sitting down for dinner that Roman soldiers could break through their doors and tear them out of their house. Their only crime, believing in Jesus, their imaginations would run wild, just waiting What's around the corner? What could happen? See, if, if, if this happens, and then this happens, and this happens, and then, you know how sometimes your imagination can be worse than the reality? 
It's kind of like when you're waiting to go to the doctor and you're like, but what if they do this and what if they find this and oh my gosh, and they come, eh, everything's good. You mean I was crazy in my mind for that whole day only to find out it was no big deal. Their imaginations were running wild. And so they gather like we do on a typical Sunday morning. They gather for worship and they learn that a communication has come through from one of their former leaders who had, who had been beloved. One of their leaders who, who grew them up in the faith and then went off to, to do more work in another church. A communication had come in. It, it's a letter, but it's actually a sermon. And so they gather together. There's probably, you know, 15 to 25 people gathered together in this house. And someone stands up to read this communication that has come from one of their former leaders. And, and when he stands up to read the letter, this is what they hear. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. They're in a tight situation right now. They are in scary circumstances right now. Life is pressing in on them. And you would think that their leader would write them a little bit of instruction about how to navigate the difficult political system in Rome. How about five steps to have an inner zen so that you can be all well when things are breaking loose around you? What about five steps to getting the heck up out of there so that no one takes you to the Colosseum? He doesn't give them any of these things. What he does is he says something very simple, clear, and profound. God has spoken. That's what they needed most. They needed to know that God has spoken and they needed to begin to listen again to what it was that God was saying to them in their particular situation as they sat under the anxiety and the stress. God has spoken. Done. It's like this. At the end of every worship service that you go to, the minister gets up at the end, raises his hands, and he gives you what we call a benediction. You know what benediction means? It means good word. And what it symbolizes is that God always gets the last word over his people. Your suffering doesn't get the last word in your life. Your, your sin and your temptations and your struggles don't get the final word in your life. God gets the first word, and God gets the last word in the lives of his people. And it's as if the writer of Hebrews is saying in this passage that Jesus is the benediction of God. He is the final word of God. When God speaks in his son, he has said everything that he has intended to communicate to us about who he is and what he's like and how he tends to us, and how he serves us and cares for us, how he goes to fight for us, how he protects us. Look, it's like this. It's, it's like this. The first time God spoke in creation, he made everything out of nothing. But when God spoke in his son, he made friends out of enemies and sons and daughters out of orphans. The first time God spoke in an Exodus context, he led his people out of 
Egypt and slavery. But when God spoke in his son, he led his people walking out of the grave and he freed them from slavery to sin. The first time God spoke on a mountain, the law came down at Sinai. But when God spoke in his son, the gospel came down on Calvary. God has spoken finally and completely and definitively in his son. Everything that you should expect to learn from God's word leads you to Jesus. That's why he says, long ago, God spoke in piecemeal. It's as if the pieces of the puzzle were coming in. But when Jesus comes, the thing comes together. It all fits together. And you see what God was saying all along. It's as if, you know, if, if you were to go back to Genesis 1 to try and learn something from Adam, Adam would say, look, through my disobedience, I brought sin and ruin and ugly into the world. What you need to do is you need to go to the second Adam, the last Adam, because through his obedience, he brought righteousness and renewal. It's like if you want to go back and learn something from Noah, Noah would say to you, look, when you look at my ark, it's only meant to prepare you for the greater refuge from the storm of wrath, Jesus. It's like if you were to go back to Genesis and you were to try and learn something from Abraham, Abraham would say, look, there was a far more precious son who was laid on the altar. There was a greater substitute who was caught up in the thicket. You need to go check him out. My story is all about him. It's like if you were to sit down and try to learn something from Moses, Moses would say to you, look, there was a greater leader and mediator for God's people who, who, who was able to lead them all the way into the promised land. It's like if you were to go to Joshua and begin to try and learn something from Joshua, Joshua would say to you, look, there was someone far greater who was fighting on behalf of his people in order to lead them into the promised land, Jesus it's like if you were to go and sit down with David and you were to try and learn something from David and God's word, David would say to you, there was, a, there was a greater king who had a heart after God and he led his people in justice and ruled his people with equity. If you were to go and sit down with Solomon, Solomon would say there is a far more wise king who rules his place in justice. If, if you were to go and sit down with Isaiah, Isaiah would say, on that day when I lifted up my eyes and I saw the Lord in the temple and the train of his robe filling the place, I was looking at the Son of God. Everything in this word is bearing witness to Jesus. Because when you see all that God has, has done in Jesus and all that that God shows himself to be in Jesus. What you see is that God could not speak more profoundly about his love than he did in his son. He could not speak more profoundly about his commitment to you than he did in his son. He could not speak more powerfully about his presence with you than he did in his son. You know, we have, we have the help of the Spirit and and the, the 2020 of hindsight to look back on what took place in the, in the Gospels, but particularly on that Good Friday. And if you had been a spectator there on that Good Friday and you, and you were looking at three people up on a Roman cross, you would conclude that nothing good could come out of that. It's just another zealot, another life wasted, 
crushed under the, under the wheel of the Roman Empire. But you would have been wrong. You would have been dead wrong. Because on that day, there was so much that God was saying at that cross. At that cross, he was saying, this is how deep my love is for you. That I would give this gift. Yes, you are this broken, but I am this good. Yes, you have failed this deeply, but my successes overcome your failures. Yes, you have ruined everything, but I am a redeemer. He's saying so much in that cross. And he says so much in that empty tomb. And he says so much in that ascension. And he says so much as Jesus sits at the right hand, pleading your case, interceding for you. God is speaking through his son. Are you listening? That's the question for us. Are you, are you listening? God has a message for these anxiety-ridden people. He has a message for people who feel their vulnerability keenly. And it's this. The Son of God in the fullness of his person and work is their deepest need and God's greatest provision. This is, this is who we have. The writer is bearing witness to the greatness of Jesus, his supremacy. And this informs what they are to do and who they are to be. How do you know the kind of life you're supposed to live? You look at the essence of a beautiful life lived before God, lived under his care. You look at Jesus. Jesus is not, is, is not just an example. He's our redeemer, but he's not less than our example. When you look at Jesus, you see the way the human life was meant to work. You see so much good news pouring from his life. Just start with this idea. Before Jesus did any ministry, before Jesus healed a single person, before Jesus preached a single sermon, before Jesus had done anything of any great ministry significance, you know what the first thing we see happening is? The Father says, this is my beloved Son. God the Father declares his love over his Son before he does a thing. Do you know that when you're in Jesus, that's your situation too? That's just an example, y'all. When you look at Jesus, God is speaking. Are you listening? That's, that's the situation, y'all. He, he, he says that God is speaking in his son, but then he turns to explore more who exactly this son is, and then he begins to run down through it. He's the eternal son who radiates the glory of God from his very person. He, he is the radiance. It's not like he's a mirror reflecting. It's like he's a fire emanating, radiating. He's the eternal son, but he's also the incarnate son who made purification for sins. You know what are the three best words a sinner has ever heard? He sat down. Done. Finished. You never see one of the priests of the Old Testament sitting down because their work was never done. They never, they, they never were able to complete enough sacrifices to completely deal with sin. There was always more prayer to offer. There was always more to do because there were limitations on what they were able to accomplish. But when Jesus died once for sin and he rose from the dead, he sat down because the work was done. And because he finished the work, you can stop working to try and 
Get yourself in a little bit better standing with God. He sat down. He's the incarnate son. He's also the exalted son, enthroned in the position of honor at God's right hand. They were tempted to go back to Judaism, their old religion. You know why? Because it was safe from persecution in Rome. It was legal to be in Judaism, but Christianity was not legal. They were tempted to go back to a former trust. And aren't we also tempted all the time to try and take refuge in other things? You can try to take refuge in your money. And there'll be a slight measure of happiness to it. But that's like having a Mercedes when you need to cross the Pacific. You know, it's like being rich in pesos when you cross the border into Canada. It's, you know, it's nice to be rich, but it ain't going to do you no good. Do you see the point? This is, this is what he's saying. It's all in Jesus. Don't be tempted to run to other trusts. They will let you down. They're false promises. They are lies. This is the witness of this passage. It reminds me of this old commercial that used to come on when I was a kid for that spaghetti sauce ragu. There's this woman who's stirring over this pot, and the little boy comes up. He's like, Mom, where are the delicious mushrooms for the sauce? And she says, it's in there. <laughs> and he says, but Mom, where are the savory sausages for the sauce? And he said, it's in there. <laughs> he said, but Mom, where are the peppers and the mushrooms and the onions? And it's in there. Look, this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. If you are looking for comfort in your afflictions, it's in there. If you're looking for hope in your despair, it's in there. If you're looking for a brand new you, it's in there. You know why? Because he's in there. And to have him is to have every good and perfect gift you could ever hope for. To have him. It's good news, y'all. There's strength in your weakness there's, there's protection in the context of temptation. He's got you. Jesus is with you and for you. And God has spoken through him something decisive. The entire book bears witness to him. And that's why we need to heed the warning, which brings us to our final point. We need to consider the warning of this passage. If you look at chapter 2, look, all of these amazing things that he's been saying about Jesus, you know what the danger is? The danger is that you'll sleep on him. The danger is you'll say, tomorrow. I'll deal with him tomorrow. Later. If you haven't really wrestled with him, or if you have him, is to sleep on him. And to casually, as the writer puts it, drift away. I watched some of y'all drift away today out on the beach. You know, listen, you know what? You don't have to do anything special in order to drift. You don't have to have any particular animosity in your heart in order to drift. You don't have to harbor ill will in your soul in order to drift. You drift by a thousand small decisions to disregard and devalue what God has done in the gospel. It's a thousand small decisions. You may think it's going to be on that one big occasion where someone comes up to you and says, hey, you want to shoot this in your arm? 
and you say, okay, you know, and you, that's not the big moment where you're going to really fall apart. It's a thousand small decisions. Remember, it's the slow, subtle path that leads you to drift. Just gently, you find yourself out to sea. That's where they're at. His initial statement to the supremacy of Christ and the finality of God's word follows with a warning. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. They're in danger of drifting due to neglect. They're in danger of neglect. There are two options here. There's no middle ground. You either pay close attention or you drift, as the writer of Hebrews puts it. You either pay close attention or you drift. Drifting can be imperceptible because it happens in small increments. And we have to see that the surest route to despair and cynicism and spiritual decay is the easy casual drift. That's the easiest route. Our greatest danger is not the big moments of spiritual decision. It's the small moments. Do you know how you drift? Through practice. You know how you're formed? You're not just formed by information intake. You're not just a brain on a stick chomping information. Nom, 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 nom. You know, like, that's not, that's not how you're formed. It's that plus practices. And the way you drift is through practicing the life of the drifter. And you know the way back is through the everyday, ordinary practices where you take up the means of grace, the word, the sacraments, and prayer, and you put them bad boys to work. Do you know how you get from here to there? You put one foot in front of the other, and you walk yourself over there, right? That's how you make movement. That's the good news. You don't need any spiritual pyrotechnics. You don't need to go to some special Bible conference and be like, oh, oh, thank you, Lord. Oh, oh, yeah, I felt it. I felt it, right? You don't need all that. You need the ordinary means of grace, the word, the sacraments, and prayer. That's what you need. Pay attention to those, and you practice. Do you know how you do you know how you become a prayerless person? You practice prayerlessness, and you get good at it. Trust me, I know. It's easy to practice prayerlessness and to make a life of it. It's easy to practice ingratitude. It's easy to practice being a complainer. And in the way that you work back out of that stuff is by practicing the Christian life, <laughs> awareness of the goodness of God, attention to his word, faithfulness and community, laying your crooked soul before the Lord so that he can do his work on you. I want you this week to pray that God would help you to see what he is saying about his son and how this changes everything for you. And I want you also to pray that God would help you to heed the warning, to pay much closer attention. Don't you love how he says it? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation 
I love that phrase. It's such a great salvation. He's like, look, this is not ordinary news. Look, look, this is good news. You know why this is a great salvation? Because a great God comes after great sinners with his great love. You know why it's a great salvation? Because a great God closed a great gap in order to bring us into his great family. It's a great salvation. This is not casual. This is not an ordinary God. He is holy. That means everything he does is on a different plane. Nobody loves like he loves. Nobody shows the kindness that he shows. Nobody is merciful like he is. Nobody's patient like he is. Your friends may get tired of you and leave. He never will. People may run out of the ability to deal with you, but he never will. Evidence, the gospel, the cross. Pay attention to the witness this week and heed the warning. And let's pray that God would do a work in us to help us to be his distinctive people in this world so that we may be his beloved. And as we live as his beloved, bear witness to his love in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the witness of this text. We are grateful for you, Father, your generosity in giving your son to rescue us, to set us free, to give us hope and a future, to commit to us. We are grateful, Jesus, for what you did in your perfect life to live out the life of righteousness and goodness that we could not live and to die the death that we deserved to die so that you could set us free from the penalty of our sin so that you could bring us home. And we are grateful, Spirit, that you are at work in our lives, that you have been given to us as a gift and that you are the connection to all the riches of Christ. And we pray that you would help us to lay hold of those riches over this week. We pray that you would work in our hearts and that you would open us up. I pray for my friends in here who are still struggling to really wrestle with the Christian faith. We pray that you would help them to make progress this week. We pray that they would feel loved and respected, but also challenged to to deal with the truth claims of the Christian faith, to deal with the stubborn fact that Jesus got out of the grave. And we pray for, for your particular ministry in our midst through your spirit. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name.